1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. We're going to kick it off with a quote from Walter Anderson. It is only when we take chances when our lives improve. The initial and the most difficult risk that we need to take is to become honest. And, again, that is from Walter Anderson. Got to get out there and take some chances, or you're going to see repeat, repeat, repeat. And our brains love repetition, but that gets boring. And we, we are into this new year. Don't let six months go by and you're like, Nothing about my life changed at all this year from last year. So, so, so remember what Walter Anderson said. It is only when we take chances when our lives improve. When we take those good, small, smart chances. I want to welcome you to this morning's January the 13th Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. I'm so grateful for all he and so many of those who worked in the grassroots civil rights and just human rights. When we do things wrong and we like, we got to get each other back on the right path, those of us who helped to get us back on the right path. I am so appreciative of each of those people. And I want to welcome you again to today's show, Off the Shelf. To our loyal listeners, 18 years. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, my God, we started on real radio. Oh, and they played the smoothest jazz, and then we came over to Blog Talk Radio, and I, and I, we may, sw- I may switch again. We shall see. To those of you who are, this is your first time tuning in, I want to let you know, you absolutely are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show Off the Shelf. It is Saturday, January the 13th. Before we introduce to you this amazing guest we have, I'm so excited. I learn something from every guest, as I'm sure each of you do. We have listeners from all over around the globe. I'm sure you learn a lot from them, too. But before we do, I want to ask you this time of year. Are you really serious about change? Are you really serious cuz it's not just going to happen. I have to keep reminding myself is this is not a magical place. It's not magical where you just wish something and poof, it shows up. It's it, at some point you're going to have to take inspired or divine guidance and you got to walk it out. You got to take the actions to make change. If you're really thinking about serious, committed about making change, and it's an easy step. But to help you start to see what you really are, I encourage you to get a copy of Hill Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way. It's a book of just beautiful, poetic writings that is designed to help you open up more and more to the truth, or as the quote said, to learn to be honest about what you really are, because you are amazing. You are amazing. You can get Hill Gorgeous Wisdom Within You Knows the Way, In ebook, paperback, hardback, however you want it, and you can get it at any retailer. Just ask them if you want a copy, Hill Gorgeous, Wisdom Within You Knows the Way by Denise Turney, and they can get you a copy online or offline. Drum roll. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And this morning's guest is... Dr. Candy Campbell, I'm going to give you all her website URL later, and you have to promise yourself to treat yourself to go over and visit her website because she, got a, she has a very good website. You can just feel her energy coming through her website. So Dr. Candy Cam- Campbell is a mom and an award-winning writer, filmmaker, nurse, and motivational speaker. Oh, my goodness. She has acted in the play An Evening with Florence Nightingale, She has worked as a commercial actor for filling commercials and television spots. In addition, she is the co-founder of the the improv and stand-up company, The Barely Insane Players, which she founded in San Francisco, California. For some reason, I'm getting a deja vu moment. I don't know if we had a guest on like this before, but I'm getting deja vu. She has also taught applied improv skills to Silicon Valley startups. We'll learn more about that. I'm curious about how that works with these Silicon Valley startups. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Theater Acting, and books she has written or contributed to include Improv to Improve Healthcare, which was published by Business Expert Press, and Improv to Improve Your Leadership Team. I told you all, check Dr. Candy Campbell out online at www.can.com dot com Again, C-A-N-D-Y-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. com I just loved her website. so I thought it was super cool. So I hope you hop over there. You can even check out her website while you're listening to today's show. I think you'll be glad you did. We are absolutely honored to have Dr. Candy Campbell here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Candy. Why, thank
0: you so much for that kind introduction, Denise.
1: Oh, I'm excited to see what you were sharing. How you use improv with businesses. When I was at Merrill Lynch, there was a a man who came in. He used to be a senior marketing exec at, uh, I can't think of the name of the company, the headquartered in Cincinnati, a, a huge company. And he he! All of a sudden, he went away five years, hid his wife and son, and went selling. He came back and he used movies to help major corporations and their teams. So you never know where the help's coming from. But to kick off, I want to just let you know the first few questions I ask every guest that's coming on, so our listeners can get a little backstory on the guest before I start talking about their books and their other works. So to start today's show, Candy, can you tell off the Shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up?
0: Yes, I am originally from Portland, Oregon, and I lived in uh, the suburbs of the city, which at that time, I grew up in the 60s, was about a half a million people. It's a a whole lot more now. it was the time of life when uh we we did have some people who had uh fences uh to in their backyards but mainly uh, your mother especially in the summer would let you out after breakfast and not expect you really home until the lights went on at night. You know, everybody it was uh, took a village to raise a kid, and and everybody knew everybody else in the neighborhood for blocks, and we were let to roam, and uh, we didn't get into any trouble. Isn't that interesting?
1: You know, that's so that is so interesting. Other guests that have come on, and I know my myself. It was very different back in like the seventies and the 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 late sixties and earlier it it was a community was really a community and it it was almost like an extended family your neighbors you knew you knew your neighbors you knew their their kids their grandkids you you just everybody was mr. and mrs and yeah when a street light came on you had to be in the house oh my <laughs> goodness you that, it, that's the way it was back then, and it seemed like it was okay unless things were going on, then we people just didn't talk about it. But now, as a kid, and Port—I want to ask you this before. Portland now seems like a place that's almost wide open, where you could do anything. I've never been there, but was it that way when you grew up? No, like a very free, open. I don't no? think
0: so. I think it's changed quite a bit. Yeah, it was it was pretty typical of regular size or medium size cities at the time, and I think I think it's for a couple of reasons, Denise. One was that when I was growing up, most of the moms stayed home. My my father owned a restaurant, so my mom would go to assist you know in the restaurant uh, during lunch hours. But most of the day, she was around, and when my mom was away, she knew that the lady next door, or the lady next door to the lady next door, you know, everybody would keep an eye out for the kids. It was it was a much more safe environment than today.
1: Now, when you were a, a, a kid, what wow. did you dream of being when you grew up? What did you want to be when you grew up?
0: Uh, how old are you asking? The different different age groups. I had different <laughs> different goals.
1: Like five, six, seven, eight years old. Oh well, in those days, I just
0: wanted to uh, ride horses. That you know, it was uh, a, a big goal. I, I did learn to ride, and my very first job was when I was thirteen. Uh, guiding people at the local writing academy which was a 30 minute drive and that was you know I don't know if you you remember this but 30 minutes drive was a long it was it was a sacrifice for my dad to drive me out there and drop me off on a Saturday morning that was a long drive 30 minutes
1: mm, I think it is still <laughs> It's still not not as much, but it's still it's not it's certainly not right right around the corner. Yeah, I, I the horses they're they're beautiful. Who or what inspired you? Like, why books? Who or what inspired you to uh, to want to st- write a book?
0: I never woke up or never aspired to be an author. It was something that sort of came upon me because I couldn't, the first book that I wrote, I wrote, I've written three children's books and those were the first three books that I wrote and they were in response to the fact that somebody um, I'm also a nurse and somebody was having a baby and they asked for children's books and I just knew that I had seen this book but I couldn't find it and turns out Somebody up there was tapping me to write it, and it was called My Mom is a Nurse. <laughs> oh, so that
1: was the beginning. Oh. oh, okay. You did children's books. You do so many things. You are a go-getter. Have you always been a go-getter? And did somebody in your past demonstrate to you going after what you, what you want? Because we're only here for a short time, and a lot of us never, ever Get to what we really want to do, mm-hmm. and for me, mm-hmm. it was my dad when he. I saw him going after his dreams. Did did what, Have you always been a go-getter? And who inspired you to go after what you really want?
0: Well, now that I think of it, Denise, I suppose it was my father as well, because he and his family were not well-to-do. Um, they, you know, he's a first-generation American. Um, you know, the ancestors, if you will, came over before him. And he, you know, he and his brothers and sisters were the first born here. Uh, no education to speak of. He didn't quite finish the first semester of high school before he had to drop out and uh, help support the family. That was common in those days. And as it turned out, I was the oops child. My mom was 41 when she had me and that was, that was unusual. Most ladies, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. But, but my father um, was unusual in his family because something, this goal of getting ahead and being a business person, being respectable and having a business and, and providing for his family in a way that his his father had left them the night he was born. He disappeared. He was an alcoholic. So I think he wanted to, you know, remake the picture of the family. And he was always encouraging us to uh, do more and try harder and do your best. And I, I'm sure that was an inspiration for me.
1: Mm. Now, was nursing your first career... I I I I admire nurses. It's a it's a, And then I have another question I wanted to ask you, but I'll I'll wait. Was nursing your first career? And when you were a nurse, you said you still are. How has that career changed, especially with technology and now AI? Uh, but first, was it was that your first career? And then, if you could tell us what a typical day was like, very briefly, as a as a nurse.
0: The answer is no. Uh, my first career was as a professional actor, but it was it was short-lived because after I graduated with that first bachelor's in theater and acting and I was cast, I was on my way to New York, I was cast as a lead in Summerstock, and the director, who had been one of my professors, put the moves on me. They used to call it a casting couch experience. Mm-hmm. Now they call it the Me Too movement, right? And... Um, And uh, I was so shocked because I had babysat for this individual and did not, you know, obviously it was so Pollyanna-ish. I didn't read the signs. He was having marital difficulties, which he divulged to me after I shoved him off of me and said, what in the world are you doing? Denise, he was old. He was 40. And I was 21. (laughs) And so uh, I, 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 stopped acting and, and, and didn't, I mean, I went to New York, but not as an actor. Um, I didn't know what to do. I knew that I liked travel and that actually led me into nursing because after this casting couch experience, I went home with my tail between my legs, you know, parents saying you shouldn't have taken that stupid degree, you know, you would never be employable. Um, Happily, I I had been on full scholarship uh, in my bachelor's, and the third year of my my undergraduate, I had spent, uh, because I love travel and I wanted to experience travel, I spent in Europe, uh, based in Vienna, and I just thought, you know what, I was most happy studying history, and I love travel, so... Even though I'm not, never have been looking like uh, any version of a Barbie doll, <laughs> I uh, I went to I went to a a meeting, if you will, um, an interview when the old airline Pan Am came to town and they hired me, and that is where I got the call, as I call it. To be a nurse, thirty thousand feet up.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Now, I did do uh, when I got out of Navy. I did do some uh, temp work at a hospital, and the nurses. I mean, I think, man, are they work as hard as the doctors. Oh yeah. And that was a high pressure job. Is it still yeah. a high pressure job? And 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 mm-hmm. and what? Mm-hmm. Is it still a high-pressure job and what can be done to reduce the pressure that accompanies, you know, a high-pressure career like that?
0: Okay. First part of this that I I think is important to mention is that perhaps folks don't understand that nurses are very well-educated. Uh, a lot of people look at the hierarchy of health care and they think, Oh well, you know doctors of course they 're they 're like god it 's m d g o d it 's <laughs> not really um, but the fact is, of course, doctors have more uh, scholastic education well, in some ways, I mean, I have a doctorate, but you know what i mean uh, they mm-hmm. they have a different Uh, if if the education were a path then there's going to be a bifurcation of that path at a certain point nurses are more social scientists who work with the whole of the person so you don't have to necessarily have a a subspecialty although many many of us do Um, that said it is very high pressure and why well it's always been this way because The fact of taking your body, mind, and soul and becoming a service person, putting the patient needs first and your needs second is not an easy thing to do because of the mental and physical and emotional uh, return on that sort of investment. It's very stressful and taxing. And because, of, you know, patient information is, is, is a secret, you are prevented from sharing this with other people. So we, we have it inside of ourselves and we carry around a lot of um, information that we're not able to share with anyone who isn't privileged to, to know that. And so since we see people, well, occasionally at the, most wonderful point in their life, but very often in the most difficult points of their life, as you probably saw. Uh, It is quite challenging, and because of that, that and the requirements of the education, and may I just say a little side note here, as an artist and an actor, when I made that decision five years later, after I had graduated the first time, five years I flew, and then decided to go to nursing school, I had to have tutors to get me back and, and uh, relearn algebra and uh, get to the point where I could pass anatomy and physiology. These are, these are difficult courses. The the prerequisites into nursing are, are something that um, the bar is very high because, of course, the risk is very high, um, Well, anyway, that's that. So the education qualifications are high. The emotional, physical qualifications are high. And that is why we have always had a problem with not enough nurses. So that's Uh, it in a nutshell.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and they say it's like during COVID, it... uh it got worse, you know. And they were working those mm. long, long hours as well. Um, now, why? Why you were creating, Well, before I start talking about your book, I wanted to ask you too. So, you went from you went acting and you had that casting couch experience. Good for you for getting out of there. And then you went into nursing as you started traveling, and then you discovered nursing. What was the shift into doing the improv work? When did you and what? Make that shift, and what
0: motivated that change? Well, I'll tell you, the shift really came after I was divorced, after 16 years of marriage and three children, Uh and it was a very difficult divorce. Um, I'm not going to really speak mostly to that. Just say that when I was the sole support of children 8, 11, and 13, I had to totally shift my thinking, and uh, I had been um, married to someone who didn't really want me acting, so, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, I was raising children and working as a nurse, but then I, I moved um, from Southern California to Northern California to be close to family, and after several months, I thought to myself... I just need to get back to laughing again. I've always been a person with joy in my heart. And so I uh, saw an ad, and uh, not an ad, I saw a little article in the, in the local newspaper talking about a clean comedy company stand-up lesson. I enrolled and I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to learn how to turn the pain into joy and laughter. So I learned stand-up comedy, started performing, and while I was in that process, I learned that the other people in the class were all taking improv, and I thought to myself, you know, how interesting. I'm the one here with an acting background. You would think this work would be easy for me, but here's the realization. When you're doing stand-up, you are up there being yourself. When you're an actor, you get to be somebody else. You get to know what you're supposed to say. In stand-up, yeah, you rehearse what you're supposed to say, but there's an element of the improv that comes in. So that's what started it. And my friends and I, four of us, created that company you mentioned, The Barely Insane Players. We were together for almost three years in the San Francisco area. And one night, getting to the point of your question... One night after another happy performance, people used to always come up to us and because we were, you know, very happy to talk with the audience and answer their questions. Uh, somebody always said, oh, you didn't really do that on the fly, did you? You must have had a plan of that one thing, whatever it was. I mean, but no. And we, you know, spent some time trying to convince them that no, you know, you heard the suggestion. We we just, you know, we're goofballs and we we practiced the principles, but that's that's it. So this one night, this one fellow came up and he said, Okay, I get it. You didn't have a plant. But what I saw was that you all took a problem and you transformed it into a solution. And do you think you could come and teach my engineers how to play nice wow. and park? <laughs> yeah. And so that was sort of the beginning of it all. He was a person who was the CEO of a Silicon Valley startup at the time. It's since been subsumed into a much larger company. And uh, all that to say, that's how it started. I had already with a minor in education and I had experience um, uh, when I was still married of, of teaching as a substitute in our, our small um, unified school district. I taught K through 12 and so I knew how to devise the curriculum and I devised the curriculum, and the, I was the one who answered the call of the of those of us uh, who were in that company, and that's how it started.
1: Oh wow! Oh my goodness! Don't you love when stuff just seems to come out of nowhere, and you're like, mm. wow! Now,
0: wow. now, can
1: you give a, talking about improv? Can you give us an overview of improv to improve your leadership team?
0: You know that second book in the series was written during COVID, and the first book, if I can mention it, was Improv to Improve Healthcare. Um, I I I thought it was so important to address how to mitigate risk when failure is deadly, with this method of relationship building and team building with improv, which I have. Uh, like I said, I started doing, you know, years before, but mostly I couldn't get a toe into healthcare because there wasn't any what they called evidence to back it up. So that was became the doctoral work uh, at Stanford with an interprofessional group, and we did a longitudinal mixed-method study and showed the efficacy of that work. Um, however... I, during COVID, I thought to myself, what do we need in life? We need leaders, no matter what their industry, especially those who work in what we call um, high-risk environments, to, to come out of their office to be known by, to be visible, to be known by the people they work with. That sort of atmosphere, you know, invokes an inclusive culture, which is part of the problem that everybody's talking about. And and when we have the agency to speak up and feel that we're going to be heard, that invites the sort of innovation uh, that employees love. That makes them want to come to work because they know that they're they're all on the team. They're all doing something that's important, and of course the return on investment is that it it keeps you out of the court
1: <laughs> and and keeps people safe. So. You know what? I Thank thank you for that. I've been in situations where even people at the top of the house of even a major corporation, they'll say things like call us if there are any issues and contact HR, but a lot of times you have bad leaders who never are removed. All somebody does is keep talking to them so I really appreciate when you said that because, I've, I mean, a, a poor leader can really make people's lives miserable, not just at work, but you can take that stuff home with you, and it's just, it's not good. So I really appreciate you uh, writing and sharing that book. Um, now, just how does, though, just how does, Candy, does improv help sharpen and improve leadership skills? Okay. Uh,
0: Let me give you an example. First of all, the overview. I love to quote Einstein, who said, imagination is more important than knowledge. And improv is, well, another thing I have to say, I have to parse words here for a moment. When people hear the word improv, they're thinking of usually uh, comedy, you know, Mm -hmm. perhaps They've seen the television shows or whatever. And by the way, um, the television show is highly produced and the advertisers require that only the funniest bits are even allowed, which, you know, totally understandable. I've been at the recording and, I, and I've known people who were on the show and it's, it's uh, very interesting how that's done. If you've been to a real improv live performance where you're in the audience, you know that some things work better than others. Some scenes might be really poignant. And so when I started to teach improv, um, I recognized that even though I'd been studying it for some time and working to find the funny as a performer that it was totally different emphasis when you're working with people to bring out the best and create relationships. That's why we call the difference, we call it applied improvisation. And those principles um, sort of been flying around for a long time. I've earmarked 12 of them. Other people say, oh, there's only three or four. It doesn't matter. Um, What I like to say is the reason that it works is that the principles can be applied in both personal as well as professional lives because we know from a systems analysis, Denise, when we go in, to work with a large organization and look at their pain points, look at what's costing them money, why employees are leaving, uh, what 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 is costing them litigation, you know, what is dangerous, what is not happening correctly or rightly in that organization, the root cause analyses that happen really. And, and there's a lot of research, a lot of publication about this, it comes down to usually three things, and one of them is always communication or miscommunication, as we say. And so then you say to yourself, well, okay, there's all sorts of um, communication skill building programs, certified programs that cost a heck of a lot of money to implement Because, um, but they're not, they obviously haven't been that effective all the time because they come in there one day, everybody checks the box, okay, we did that. So now we've told them, you know, listen to each other and uh, be friendly and now we'll move on. But, you know, that's not how people learn. Being lectured to is not the way we learn. When we Look at how human beings learn the study of cognitive behavioral science. We study children, right? They're the, right? The the ages between one and five or even ten, that's when we inculcate the view of the world. And how do they do it? Well, children are imaginative and they're allowed to play. And mostly, you know, there's exceptions. But so so improv is really the science of play. We do have rules or principles. You know, for instance, uh, be helpful. Uh, (laughs) uh, We say uh, silence your inner editor. Um, We say say yes and accept what other people are saying, and and risk being imperfect. There are lots of principles that we work on, and we do it in a way that allows people to experience the principles.
1: Mm. And, And can you tell us, so I wanted to ask you too, can you tell us about some of the principles that are a part of Improv for, for the work that you do with different organizations,
0: yes, in order to be more inclusive this is this is a big deal uh lately, considering all these various programs that are trotted out, all the money that's poured into you know new policies and procedures to to protect people from a general i don't know we could call it unpleasantness at work. Um, for all of that, um, we say some of the principles are not, like I said, not as a performance tool, but by taking time to build a relationship. And how do you do that? You, you, these are workshops where we don't have titles. We invite, first of all, all the C-suite to come together with management teams and put aside the hierarchy. Everybody's just what we call a player uh, or a participant. And we start by being willing to risk looking silly, to be vulnerable. That's part of what we call the improv mindset. And get people to understand that it's not going to be a threat to their dignity. We're not going to do anything to embarrass anyone. And that there will be a time where everybody will be doing partner exercises or maybe three people or maybe some people will be asked to volunteer and no one's ever made to do anything. It's um, particularly important to ask people to buy into risk looking silly, being vulnerable, so that you can risk saying yes and to some ridiculous, silly, funny thing that might happen in these exercises. Because why? Well, because as professionals, no matter what you do, we are trained, In our deductive reasoning and inductive, well, mostly the deduction, we look at what's happening and we are trained to think no but, no but, or yes but, either one. Yes but, why? Because we don't want to risk a dangerous situation. Uh So we say we have to quiet our inner editor, recognizing that voice that is that the professional voice that says anytime you attempt to do something new, it doesn't really matter what that is, the little voice is sure something new is gonna turn out to be dangerous or stupid or foolish or underneath your dignity, right? And and so you don't wanna to risk to do it. But we we quiet that inner editor because Improv exercises are kind of like, I make the analogy, it's like the person who is an athlete or, or a, a dancer or something like that, you're going into the gym to exercise so that you can do your work better when you are doing your professional work. And, and the last thing I'll mention, because I know our time is, is limited, is to listen and practice listening and noticing, focusing on what somebody is saying. And we, we have exercises to, to make ourselves understand what it means to be an empathetic, really good listener. And one of the little phrases that we use is that words are golden. You listen as though the person's words were
1: golden. Wow. Yeah, like what they're saying is really has value instead of, that's in this busy world. that <laughs> I can see everybody, even at an, on an individual level, you could benefit uh, from this, families, et cetera. But that share, what types of, are there specific types of organizations that Improv to Improve Your Leadership Team is written for?
0: No. The fact is that, I was thinking of risk-averse industries when I wrote it. But when I was doing the research, I realized, oh, my goodness, this method has been gaining popularity in the last several years. Uh, Throughout the business organizations, pretty much like I mentioned with the Silicon Valley startup, um, it's, it's an idea whose time has come. Because why? Because things haven't gotten better and people are more open to, well, we threw that spaghetti against the wall. We, we invested, you know, X tens of thousands of dollars on that program. Each person got a book and what happened? There's no mark that is a a measurable change in terms of our accident rate or litigation or our shareholder success. I mean, the kinds of, measurements that businesses use have are not always because of the economic forecast you know we're not all dealing in pork bellies or whatever but even within those companies they ask themselves what can we do and you started this whole um, hour with this question what can we do to change in January that is different to get us from where we were to where we want to be. And I'm saying this is a way to open the floodgates of creativity to make it safe to be at work or to even make it safe in your personal life to have difficult conversations.
1: Mm. Oh, my goodness, I love the work you're doing. And this is what I love about Off the Shelf, the more a guest talks about their work, and you can't put it all in a book description, it's just the more you learn, like, this could really be either very entertaining for fiction or nonfiction in this case. And I could just see, i just peep leaders, I'm like, oh, my God, people need this. <laughs> because a poor leader just has such, it could, you could impact hundreds of people's lives negatively if you if you don't have this. This is just a very, very good thing, almost a must. Now, going back to your first book, while creating Improv to Improve Health Care, did you do a lot of research and write the book yourself or did you work with a team? You did do, people doing research and et cetera for the book as you were compiling Improv to improve healthcare.
0: There, um, the main impetus was the fact that it took me um, years to finish the doctorate and the study, you know, let me just take a second here. When you decide that you want to do a doctorate. And for me, it was pressed upon me because I was um, sort of headhunted by a second university after I was teaching at the first. And they said, well, we'd love to hire you. You know, you've got books and award-winning film. You've got peer-reviewed articles. You've been speaking all over the place. But the problem is you don't have a doctorate. But let us fix that. (laughs) So, So, of course. So then, that was at the University of San Francisco, so then I I had to have this discussion, this one-on-one with the dean who said, well, you know, we know that, you know, you have to have a doctorate to teach here, but the point is, you don't just say, oh, I want to take a doctorate. The point is, you want to add to the knowledge base, to the research. You either want to carve a new path or add to the research that's already there, and don't worry if you don't know what you want to do, I got like 16 projects, I can put you on a team, or what do you think? And I said, well, since I have been teaching improv for, uh, by that time, it had been over 10 years, and I haven't been able to get a toe in the door in healthcare, I'd like to uh, show that this is an effective tool to right the wrongs and save patient lives. And so she gave me the go-ahead, connected me with the folks over at Stanford, and that is the that was the road that I took. And while I was writing it, of course, I had to, you know, when you're writing this doctorate, you have to, you have, to have many prongs to your evidence base. And so, of course, I started with the study of communication, which was near and dear to me as an actor, Because, you know, in the olden days, we're talking ancient times, for instance, the Greeks, the the way they spread the word about a certain idea, whether it was Aristotle or any of the other then playwrights of the time, the theater was the place where a new idea was put out to the general public. And their theaters were sometimes very different than what we have now. Uh Very often, the audience would stand up and talk back to whatever is going on stage uh, mhm so there there are there are a lot of things that I learned about how ideas are spread, how communication is given, and how leaders use communication to change cultures and societies
1: mm. Can you tell us about a few topics? covered in the book and then I definitely want to talk about some of your acting. Can you can you tell our listeners about a few of the topics covered in improv to improve healthcare? Yes. First of all I
0: start out with the the problem of leadership today and address leaders. And by the way, both of these are pretty much workbooks. They there are exercises in each chapter. Um, so Addressing the leaders, knowing, uh, recognizing the, the problem of miscommunication in the workplace. And then the chapters are divided according to the principles, which, uh, again, like I said, uh, accepting what we call an offer. And an offer, for instance, could be anything that somebody says because words are gold then. So that's uh, on stage. That's what we call in the glossary of improv. That's that's an offer. Um, talking about how to how to silence that inner editor and risk being imperfect. How to enlarge in conversation by thinking beyond a yes no answer. Um, in, in instituting the golden rule. You know, maybe leaders don't think about that all the time. They're thinking maybe more out of fear of the way they look or maybe perceived or the bottom line if they're working with shareholders or what have you. But being helpful in every way is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength, catching Mm. people doing something right, you know? Um, Being adventurous, imaginative. So we go on and on. Uh, in those topics with exercises that are meant to inspire leaders to then um, take their leadership teams and, and do workshops. And then I'll tell you what, the end is always the goal in mind is that we change orientation of, uh, we change culture by changing the orientation. So we start with the leadership teams. And then we say, okay, everybody who comes into the organization, instead of one day, they're going to have, uh, we're going to make orientation to improv uh, a monthly activity. And there will be opportunities for people, teams, to come together and interactively in different departments. There's so many ways to create a culture of innovation and adaptation where voices are heard and, and uh, new ideas are brought up and worked upon, which, as you know, probably everybody knows the story of how Apple started, how Google started, you know, uh, how Amazon started, all, many companies that were just garage uh, groups. And, and what do they have? they had the agency to speak up among this group of confidence and take a chance to try something new mm,
1: which is what you and your friends do when you started your your play group oh my goodness mm-hmm. i love the work the work that you're doing now as we come down to we have less than just a little over t- uh, 10 minutes now is an evening with Florence Night. We're shifting gears to our listeners. Is an evening with Florence Nightingale. Is this a one-woman play? And if not, can you tell us a little bit about the play and how it how it takes place? An evening with Florence Nightingale.
0: It is a play and it's a solo performance. I do all the characters. And let me just preface it by saying this is my third solo show. We were off Broadway Whoa. last year. And we've been in seven states so far. We're racking up several new ones this year. Three countries so far. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so here's, you know, the funny thing, we talked about this group that I was in, the improv company, and like a lot of uh, theater groups, uh, unlike Second City and and some other ones like that that have been around for years and years, uh, our group, uh, stayed together for about uh, almost three years, and then you know somebody moved, and it, it just sort of you know time time had come. And what what created the very first of my solo shows was the fact that as this group went its separate ways, we had already booked a gig with one of my professional nursing associations, and I was not going to give give back the deposit.
1: I, so, <laughs> so I man.
0: I will tell you, Denise, I went on my face and prayed to the Lord above. Can you please
1: help <laughs> me out here?
0: And within three weeks, I had a solo show. It's what we call a, a trunk show where I did several characters. It was just a comedy show. And uh, that was only a one-night show. And then years later... Um, again sort of like the books you know something there was a question that was really bugging me about what was happening in healthcare, and I wrote the second one then and performed that uh, first for the San Francisco Fringe and then I got picked up and it was in San Francisco for uh, many weeks and uh, that was called Full Frontal Nursing a Comedy with Dark Spots and then years later as I was a faculty member in the School of Nursing there at University of San Francisco, it took me uh, a long time to commute back to my home in Walnut Creek. You know, it's a suburb, and, you know, you finish your class, at four, and the traffic is terrific. <laughs> One day <laughs> in 2010, our librarian came in and said, hey, everybody just came to tell you that this is the 100th year anniversary of the death of Florence Nightingale. And we're oh. like, okay, big whoop. And she said, the difference is that the uh, British Library and other folks have uh, digitized all her 200 books and articles and over 10,000 letters. I got them here. They're free. Uh, dive in. So I dove in. It took me three years reading After my last class, while I was waiting for the traffic to die down, it took me three years to read all this. And then I was chatting with friends at the National Speakers Association, a holiday party, and one friend challenged me. He said, good grief, you're talking more about this lady than you are about uh, improv." And uh, I said, well, I, I use improv every day in my teaching, but this this woman was just, uh, people don't know. And he said, well, why isn't that your third solo show? I'm like, oh, come on. That's a lot of work. You know, you don't make that much money. And he said, okay, okay, I get that. But what would have to happen for you to do this? I think you really should. I said, oh, Barry, God himself would have to tell me. <laughs> so the next morning. So the next morning, nine thirty, I get a phone call. This is God. You should do that show. <laughs> so I said, okay, okay. And then it took me quite a while to get it up, and but the rest is history. It's been around. It's it's morphed, and it's available.
1: Wow. So you you do everything behind the scenes on your own as well. You're like this a mm-hmm. uh, one woman all the behind the scenes on stage by yourself, you're doing this all by yourself. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I,
0: I must say I had creative directors, two of them, who helped me mount the show. And then after uh, I took it down for a while because I was so busy and there were other things that happened, then I wanted to remount the show and uh that director wasn't available so i found another wonderful director who helped uh you know put in some more comedy bits because it was uh, her life is like an action movie uh but anyway it um yes so it stood the test of time and it's constantly evolving you know and there's a q and a by the way there's a q and a built in
1: you are so multifaceted you are just like whatever you are really go after what you want to, and I inspire our listeners to do that cause, because before we know it, it's over. And then you're like, oh, mm. tomorrow is gone, so I hope you did what you wanted to do while you were here. Now, can you share very quickly uh, three to four steps you found, and I can only imagine already listening to you what they probably are, but that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books and your plays?
0: Wow. Uh, marketing and PR, and I'm I'm not the greatest at this because it takes so much just to be a creative person. So I've hired people along the way to help, you know. And um, I had um, a manager. I have two different agents that help me, you know. I wasn't in an in an exclusive contract for a while, but you know during COVID that didn't sort of work out. So, uh, but I have uh, different people that help book me and um all that information is on the Nightingale website well i have two websites right so there's a <laughs> there's a website for the Florence Nightingale show which is really for presenters with videos and and testimonials uh, all kinds and if i might add what that is is that okay i can tell people what that is sure go ahead <laughs> okay um If you type in Florence Nightingale Live, L-I-V-E dot com, you'll see a lot of information on that, including the book that I wrote. Again, not because I meant to, but because after I started doing the show, people would say to me afterwards, Do you have a book? And I'm like, oh, on what? (laughs) Oh, I guess. Yes, I guess I I could write a book. And so then I... I must say I, I didn't know exactly what to put in the book, so I put in a lot of the um, original content that I wrote. That is too long to put in a solo show. The first script I wrote was when I did a table reading. It was two hours and fifteen minutes. So I put in a lot of it, <laughs> and then one of my book writing mentors, uh, Mark LeBlanc. Um, Read the draft, and he said, "You know what this lacks?" And I said, "What?" And he said, "It it doesn't have you in it." And people want to know yeah. how this woman inspired you. So uh, I went back, and and after each of the um, sections, I talk about myself in there, and it's interesting. I I didn't think anybody'd be interested in in why I wrote it or how this happened, but evidently they are. So <laughs>
1: that was good. And, and that's a good thing. Now, where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your children's books and if you can share those titles and a copy of, well, this might you said they're workbooks, but if they, if, if an organization or an individual is looking to particularly improv to improve your leadership skills, I think we all are leaders in some way, mm-hmm. and improv to improve health care your children's books, and, and any of your plays, if they're in book form, where can our listeners get a copy of these works? Well, they're all
0: on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or the last two of the improv books are, are published by Business Expert Press. They can uh, do that, or they can go to my website, and there's you know they can just click on the books there. The Nightingale book is called Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity Insight, Innovation, and the subtitle there, by the way, I will just throw in, was because as I was um, an academic and I was reading all this stuff for three years, I, I, kept, I kept noticing there are themes to what she says over and over mm-hmm. and over, and I started categorizing the themes, and it turns out those are the three things she writes about over and over and over.
1: Can you share those three with us, or do we have to get the yes. book?
0: <laughs> yeah, Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, and Innovation. And you know something? I would love to give your listeners a gift, if that's all right, if I can mention this. Sure. If they Sure, if they would go to either or both of my websites, so one is CandyCampbell.com and the other one is FlorenceNightingaleLive.com. If they fill out the contact form and just write gift, I will send them the front matter and the first chapter of, uh, for the Nightingale, the Nightingale book, and for the improv, the improv book. And, oh, if they're interested in the children's books, those are my mom is a nurse, my grandma is, and I was a preemie.
1: Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Oh, my goodness, the gift, thank you. I have so enjoyed you, and I'm sure our listeners have. We have been speaking with Dr. Candy Campbell. If you came in midstream, once the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in the archive as often as you want and share with other people. Uh, I, I, the, the improv to improve leadership. Oh, my goodness, I'm sitting there thinking every leader needs this. So uh, mm-hmm. you can share listen to it in the... Archive and share it with other people, especially those who you might think enjoy it or benefit from it. And again, it's Candy yeah. Campbell. She has two websites, and it's, it's spelled the way it sounds, Candy Campbell uh, dot com, and you can learn more about her and more of what she's got coming up. Oh my goodness! Thank you, Doctor Candy Campbell. You talk about a go-getter. She is not fooling <laughs> around. She's done acting and nursing and teaching and. She is not fooling around, so we thank Dr. Candy Campbell for taking time out of her day to be here with us on Off the Shelf today. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for being here with us today. Please see you back here next Saturday. Just put it on your calendar. You're going to catch Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You just don't want to miss. These guests. And as I always tell you, you are incredible. You're phenomenal. You are absolutely amazing. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself today. See you back here next Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, Candy, I will send you, email you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you so much. Bye for Thank now.
0: You.